more of the good stuff. And it's a good afternoon from me, Dr. Cindy Siwe-Fansale. Um, I'm on Twitter, at DocCindy, D-O-C-S-I-N-D-I. And we're back again for Half Hour. You can tweet us at cliffcentral.com. You can catch us on WeChat, Cliff Central, Facebook, Cliff Central, and Instagram, Cliff Central. I have Kelly Duplessis in the studio. And we're going to have a really interesting show this afternoon because she's here to speak about rare diseases. Kelly, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So first things, um, the first thing I want to ask Kelly is, how did you get involved? Um, how did you start the Rare Diseases Society of South Africa? So my son was born with a rare condition, um, and he was 11 months old when he was diagnosed. And uh, at that stage, there was really no help uh, in South Africa for rare disease patients, and I realized that something needed to be done. Um, you know, there's a there's a, a, a doctor from the UK always says that any rare disease patient doesn't mean nothing can be done for them. And that's exactly what we found, like generalized things like just having a shoulder to cry on or someone to listen really makes a difference in terms of coping. So what started off eventually as um, initially as a support group for rare disease patients, we never thought it would get this big. We thought we'd have maybe 100 patients and that would be it. And it's just boomed. And now it's turned into this huge organization and we've got thousands of patients on our database and all of them live in South Africa. We do have some from neighboring countries, but mostly South Africa. And, um, yeah, they're all in the same shoes as, that we were once in. So your son was diagnosed with a rare disease at 11 months. Correct. So he was born and nothing was picked up, nothing was noticed. So we, we kind of knew from birth, from the time he was about six weeks old, it was evident that he was not thriving as he should have, and yeah. there was muscle weakness, so we could see something was wrong. But there was never the expectation that he was going to be born sick. Mm-hmm. Um, we had absolutely no idea. And I was a first-time mom, so I also wasn't confident in my you know, in my approach. And you kind of think that maybe you are a little bit nuts, and you're reading the baby books, and they're saying your kids should be doing this by this sort of age, and you kind of think, okay, well, you know, what's happening? So the milestones weren't adding up. Yeah, the milestones were, I mean, he was very, very far behind on his milestones. He battled with eating and drinking and um, uh, generalized feeding problems, uh, couldn't sit, couldn't hold a bottle, couldn't hold up his head. So we knew, I mean, it was evidence, and it just got progressively worse as time went on. And visits to, to your doctor or to your baby clinic, what, was, you know, what happened there? So from the baby clinic point of view, um, they didn't pick anything up. Uh, visits to the doctors was more me insisting something was wrong, and the doctors telling me, don't compare your child to another person's child because every kid's different, which does have some merit. But uh, so we eventually just started doctor hopping until um, eventually – we, Jean had acute pneumonia on both lungs and uh, he needed to be readmitted. And I went to a new doctor and I camped in his waiting room and I said, I'm not leaving until he sees us. And um, he came out and straight away said, look, I agree, something more is wrong. That You know, this needs to be investigated further. And then they tested him for more common stuff like cystic fibrosis. Mm. I was about to ask about that, yeah. But that all came back negative and then he was eventually diagnosed with Pompeii at 11 months, so... And so what condition does he have? It's called Pompeii disease. Oh, I've heard of that. He's actually got uh, two okay. conditions. He's got Pompeii, and then that's glycogen storage type 2, mm-hmm. and he has type 9 as well. So effectively, he's the only patient in the world that they've ever found with both. Yeah, with both of them. Yeah. And in terms of uh, of his ongoing care, what, ca- what care does your son need? 
So he gets enzyme replacement therapy, which is a lifelong, um, it's a lifelong therapy. Yeah. And basically it is a, an artificial form of the protein that he doesn't make, his body doesn't make naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that treats glycogen storage type two. There is no treatment available for type nine at this stage. Um, although they are now doing studies with him, um, to determine whether it benefits the type nine. So effectively through all of our struggles, we may have possibly found an option for type nine patients going forward. And in terms of the funding, who's paying for all of this treatment? Our medical aid, thank heavens, pays for it. Uh, it was initially a fight. We changed medical aids. It hasn't always been easy, but uh, our medical aid is very compliant and they've been very, very good to us. Um, I often find, and it's one of the bits of advice that we're always giving patients that we deal with, is com- constant communication with your medical aid is key. They also have a view and uh, it's about everybody sitting around the table and finding the common ground. Um, you know, they kind of are worried about shareholders. We kind of worried about our patients and in Often there is a, a common ground that can be found and, you know, where everybody walks away happy. It's just about that continu- continuous communication. I mean, a lot of the stuff, especially in rare diseases, the treatments are not evidence-based because there's so few patients. And they haven't done enough clinical trials Correct. on that condition. Exactly. So, yeah, so, so it's very difficult to motivate now for a medical aid to spend 3 million rand a year on a patient with a drug that they're not entirely convinced works and you can't show them that it does because you don't have enough clinical data. So it makes it quite a challenge. But if there's continuous communication and you have clear outcomes that you're trying to achieve and those are made clear from the beginning, often the medical aids will then say, all right, well, you know, we're prepared to give it a try. And the other thing as well is that um, we also need to remember as medical doctors that there's always something that we don't know or we haven't seen. And medical aids, the advisory boards are made, of, are made up of doctors like myself and um, clinical advisors. They're learning. This is a learning curve. And um, I'm glad that you, you fought and you finally managed to, to get your medical aid to pay for your son's condition. And so the, the Rare Diseases Society organization, what birthed that? So it was literally just that feeling of being completely isolated. And I just, at the time, I knew that based on our population size, we needed to have at least 300 Pompey patients in South Africa. And we were sitting at that stage with two. And I knew that some had to be out there. So it was initially a sort of an outreach to try find and identify some more patients. Subsequently, we've never gotten to 300. The most we've ever had is at the moment we currently have six. And, um, but from there, it's, you know, it was, then I had other families coming forward saying, you know, our kids got this condition. You can't turn them away when you've been in those shoes. It's very difficult to say, oh, well, sorry, we only focused on this, like, small minority. That's your problem. So then we said, okay, well, let's see how we can help. And then, you know, before we knew it, we, I mean, rare diseases, South Africa turns two next in May. So wow, we've only been around for two years. for two years. Yeah, officially, yeah. Mm. And so who got together to start to start the um, society? So <laughs> it's a funny story. So I actually uh, two of our friends were um, in Cape Town for a weekend away and I phoned them and I said, listen, I, I need to fill out some forms. <laughs> I need to put some names down. And obviously, so there's six of us on our executive board and uh, all of us have been friends and all of them had been with us through our, ju- our journey with Jean, obviously. And so I kind of just phoned and I was like, well, you know, how do you feel? And none of us ever thought at the time that it would become such a big thing. We were all like, yeah, sure. Sure, I mean, fine, not a problem. What can it hurt? And before we knew it, we were sitting now with uh, like thousands of patients that we're trying to assist. So it's been a, it's been a quite a manic, life changing experience. But we're very grateful we've done it. And in terms of outreach, um, like today, I know you were at um, Charlotte Monkley Academic Hospital. What is that about? So we were doing, um, obviously, it's Rare Disease Month um, with Rare Disease Day happening at the end of February every year. So. 
I thought that the theme around this year's Rare Diseases Day is a community and the fact that it actually takes a village to raise a child. The same applies for rare diseases. It's not only the patient, it's the caregiver. It's the parents that are now, you generally have one parent working and an, another parent looking after the kids all the time. It's the grannies that get involved and help. It's someone's aunt and a cousin and hospital visits and people filling in. So we thought that we would do genetics awareness in general for all genetic services because they are completely, completely like nobody gives them any attention in South Africa, genetic services in general. So we thought, okay, well, let's combine. We'll invite all the genetic departments that we know and that we work with, and let's have a genetics morning and it weighs awareness in the hospitals. And it was, I mean, it was such an emotional moment this morning. I saw we had the Albinism Society there as well, and um, I saw a lady with albinism come across, and she now signed up to join the albinism support group. And I sat looking at her, and I thought to myself, yesterday she woke up with no help. And today she's got some. And, you know, that's what it's all about. If it, if we've, if we've managed to educate one person today, it was worth the effort. And uh, let me tell you, Charlotte McKeke is no joke. I mean, from an organizational structural point of view, it is not, um, the easiest place to go. They, they, um, sort of, administration is shocking at, you know, being polite. It's, it's really not great. And I mean, it was a frustrating event to try to get this morning together and we don't benefit from it. We get no financial gain. We all volunteering our time and investing our time to make this level of care that their patients get better for them in that particular hospital. And uh, it was quite frustrating, but then I saw that lady and I was just like, Oh, it's been worth it. You know, even though I was, I was not exactly happy this morning. And which other um, hospitals have you been to? I know you've been to Barra. And yeah. when was that? So Barra, I was involved. Well, uh, we attended Barra Clinic with my son, even though we were on medical aid right in the beginning, um, because of the fact that they have such a good n- neurology clinic there. So um, my experience at Barra was from an inpatient point of view, and I can tell you now their service was really, really good, and they were very understanding with great staff. I mean, across the country, we always have issues in terms of access to services and access to adequate medical equipment, etc. But I think Barrow was good. We were at Crotisky Hospital doing this awareness week last week as well in Cape Town. They were absolutely fantastic. I don't want to get into politics, but I can tell you now, whatever they're doing down in the Western Cape in terms of healthcare works, because everything was clean. Their staff were so polite and friendly. Everyone was eager to learn. It was such an organized event. Next week, we'll be at Steve Biko. So that's also will be good because it's an academic hospital. Okay, so you're only focusing on academic hospitals for now. Yeah. Oh, okay. So we're starting somewhere. That was the best place to start. So you know, you mentioned genetics, um, Kelly. Um, j- just from a, from a, okay, so your son was diagnosed by a medical doctor that, that, you know, after your insistence, decided, decided to do more tests. Mm. Were you, were you tested for anything? Was your husband tested for anything? Subsequently, after, after the fact, yes, because, uh, Jean's condition is genetic. Okay. But 80% of rare diseases are genetic in origin. So, uh, that's why genetic services is also big, is a big drive for us. Um, so yeah, 80%. The, the balance of the 20% results in sort of spontaneous mutations, uh, genetic mutations, but that have not, you know, obviously come down the family tree. And also things like rare forms, uh, forms of bacteria and rare viruses viruses, etc. Uh, for instance, like Ebola is a bit of an pandemic. Mm. Um, so those are the rare, but generally speaking, the conditions we cover, 90, 80% of them are um, genetic. Okay. And in terms of um, counseling for the parents, because I'm sure there's some guilt associated with the fact that you've passed on this condition to your child. How did you guys deal with that? So the, the scary thing is that for our, on our database alone, 86% of our families go through a divorce um, uh, post-diagnosis and it just highlights the fact that there is exactly those feelings of self-hate and uh, you know resentment and guilt 
and blame. I think when you've got a dominant mutation or something that only occurs in one side of the family that you've passed on to your child, as the healthy parent, you want to blame the other one. And uh, it's almost better to have a condition where both of you have to be carriers uh, to pass it on to your child because then you don't feel so guilty. But there is most definitely that feeling of guilt and self-hate. And um, so we do offer genetic counseling and we put them in touch with genetic counselors across the country specifically to get over those initial hurdles. And also in terms of future family planning, um, you know, you need to understand what it is that you're dealing with and, and what your chances are going chances, forward. Yeah. So it's in terms of you and your partner, I mean, I'm glad that you're still together. And I mean, the, the, the figure that you've quoted – 86% of couples breaking up. That's, mm. that's shocking, but it's understandable, you know, given the, you know, the, the issues that you've highlighted. Yeah. In terms of you and your partner, are you planning on having more kids? I was already pregnant when my son was diagnosed. Uh, so we went for prenatal testing and my daughter was de- uh, declared healthy. So we went ahead and had her, but, um, I would not have fallen pregnant again. Uh, had I not been pregnant already, I would not have had a second child because for me, the risk was just too, it was just too high. It's a 25% chance. And, um, everyone says, yeah, but 25% is minimal when you're sitting with the child that's already. That. I was about to say that as well, but I, I hear what you, yeah. Yeah. You know, like when you're sitting with that 25% already, it's, it's not so great. So I wouldn't have done it, but I mean, we, I do understand there's some parents that choose to go on and have three or four kids that are all affected by the same condition and they, it, everyone, it's, it's all dependence on personal preference and personal choice. But I do think, especially given that we have such an access to decent healthcare in South Africa, it is very, very difficult to, to bring in a child into the world knowing that they're going to be born with a condition because the access to services is just so limited. Well, if you've just tuned in, I'm, I'm, I'm with Kelly Duplessis and she's the founder of the Rare Diseases um, Society of South Africa and she has a son um, with a rare disease. You can call us on 0861-555-189 or you can tweet us at cliffcentral.com. You can tweet me at docsindi, D-O-C-S-I-N-D-I and you can tweet the Rare Diseases um, um, Society on Rare Diseases SA. Um, Kelly, in terms of... Um, the financing, financing your organization. Have you had any sponsorship? So we do have uh, some corporate sponsors. We're always looking for more. So mm-hmm. if anyone out there wants to get involved, um, we do, we have corporate sponsorship programs whereby small and medium enterprises can sponsor a particular patient. So we, we calculate what their monthly costs are. And, you know, sometimes, um, a smaller company will only have 2000 rand a month to give. Or, uh, so then we, you know, we put three or four companies together to sponsor a particular child and that covers all their relevant health care. And then that kid becomes their sort of project and they get feedback from that child like, Last two months ago, I wasn't walking, but now because of therapy, I've managed to start taking my first steps. And so we give them that tangible difference. So that's quite a, it's quite a decent program. I mean, obviously, in, in terms of services as well, we're always saying it's not only about financial assistance. If you're great at managing databases, let us know. If you're good at website development, if you're good at, you know, telecommunications, we can always use services to improve our organization. So it doesn't necessarily need to be financial. It can also be in terms of services and time. Okay, and that really makes a difference. I mean, it, as much help as you can will make a difference to your organization. Absolutely. In terms of the public sector, let's come back to the public sector and just focus on your outreach there. Um, so you were at Charlotte Matlake, you will be going to Steve Beaker Academic Hospital soon. Um, how, do you focus on the genetics department? Is that where you start? Is that where the outreach so, happens? No, so we, so this morning we were in hospital streets in Charlotte Matlake, so, um, we just take over like a, a passageway and you try, just try interact with the passing traffic. So you get doctors, obviously nurses and patients all coming past you and it's just a matter of handing out pamphlets and, you know, 
some some children you can or some patients you can see from you know from quite a distance that there is a, a genetic problem and then we'll obviously make sure that we've spoken to those patients and that they know that they they can come to us for help and then it's just a matter about educating i mean you'll find people all the time that uh, will come back and say you know my sister is like might have that or then my my sister's kid or my gran or my grand died of this so there's always somebody you know everyone's been affected in some way or another you may not realize it but when you actually start becoming educated you realize and you start you know the penny starts to drop and so often when we're talking to doctors about a particular condition you'll see their eyes start widening up and then they're like oh i think i've actually got one of those you know so it's all about education and you can never be overeducated so you know that that's the whole reason so we just based we just tackle everyone that comes past us. And I know you mentioned albinism earlier on in the show. So is albinism regarded regarded as a rare disease? No, it isn't rare, but it is genetic. So oh, okay. that's, so why. that's why. Yeah. Oh, okay. So did you ever go back to the doctors that you had seen? To tell them that, listen, by the way, my son actually had something that you didn't pick up. So subsequently, I think I've seen many of them uh, in conferences and stuff that I now present at, um, at uh, highlighting the work that we do. And uh, some of them have come up afterwards and said, you know, like, we're really glad that we've had you because we won't let it happen again. Other ones, it hasn't gone down so well. But for me, it's uh, I'm all about moving forward. Uh, I think I was quite bitter for a while, as any parent would be, um, especially given that we came so close to losing him that I, you, you know, you kind of want to be like, I told you so, but it really doesn't change anything. And there's no point being bitter. So you just try and move forward. And as long as uh, everyone that had seen him initially recognizes the symptoms in the next patient, it would almost be worth it. That's amazing. I mean, I always say to people that the mom always knows. Mommies always know when there's something wrong with their child. It's yeah. just one of those things. It's like an, an inbuilt, I don't know, radar. We always know when something's wrong with our children. Absolutely. I, I stress it all the time. As mm-hmm. a mother, if you if something's niggling at you, go get it checked out. Don't leave it because we spend our lives with these kids. They, they come from within us and you know your child so intimately that, you know, it's, it's a complete level of understanding. And even with moms and dads, moms will pick up things that dads don't always pick up. Um, and it's only because you're spending like 24 hours a day with these kids. You can see the subtle changes. And it's not about comparing your kid to the other. Um, if you're noticing changes in your ch- child day in and day out, Get it checked out. Rather be safe than sorry. Mm. And in terms of I mean, your, your everyday care for your son, Kili, what support do you have? Do you have a, a, a um, support system? Who's helping you? What's what's a typical day in the life of Kili and John? So things are changing a little bit now because he's just started with school. But uh, initially speaking, right in the beginning, it was very intensive physio. And at that stage, he needed to be admitted every week for his medication because it runs over a drip, so it takes about six hours. So we had to go into hospital every week. Now, five years later, we are doing the drips at ourselves at home. So we've got, you know, so we handle all of that on our own. He's now got a portable pump, which gives him mobility, so he can move around while he's getting his drip. And uh, physiotherapy is still a very, very important part of our time. We normally go to physio four days a week. At the moment, he's on a break because he's just started school, and it's a little bit overwhelming for him. But... Um, um, and generally just, um, you know, it's like nutritional, it's nutritional supplementation five times a day. It's give, making sure he gets his medication on time every day, not forgetting, you know, keeping track. For instance, every day new things will develop. Like you'll notice today he's not holding his pen correctly. Then it's to get him the necessary support to get that done. And then when he's holding the pen properly, you'll realize he's not writing with his wrist correctly. And then it's focusing on that. So it's a continuous thing all the time. And in terms of the eating, you mentioned the nutritional, the five times a day. What does he eat? 
so at this stage, 60% of his diet is supplemented um, to give him the right amount of protein and it's you know and, and energy because of the fact that his muscles are so weak. He actually chewing is exhausting so he can't chew as much as he needs to eat in order to keep his weight up so uh, that's why he gets so much nutritional support but that is a vital component to any chronically ill person is the correct nutrition and I say it with the biggest amount of love and respect like it's not easy I know it's not easy and it is relatively expensive but in actual fact a a human body cannot function unless they're getting the right amount of Mm. nutritional support so Mm. it's something that we always push regardless of what the condition is if you're chronically ill make sure that you add a decent nutritionist Mm. not somebody that necessarily focuses on how thin you can be but actually focuses on what you're eating and how many calories etc you require to function Mm. and so for example like what 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 would he have for breakfast what did he have for breakfast this morning so um he will get normally he'll eat cereal but we'll have to fortify his milk with uh, supplementation okay and then he'll get a protein shake when he's at school along with his lunch and then come lunchtime he'll uh you know we have to fortify everything with protein uh, protein supplements and energy supplements so it's quite intensive but at the same time I don't, I'd rather have my child around for less time and have him be happy than keep him alive longer and have him be miserable so at the same time you know I'm a little bit liberal in the fact that I kind of don't want to restrict him to nothing in life so if he wants to have a chocolate I'm not going to fight with him like you know is it really worth fighting over so we just do the best that you can you know you know obviously try limit that he doesn't have too much sugar etc but as any parent should but you know obviously that he also gets a, a chance to live a little and choice of school how did you end up choosing a school for him I think they chose us actually um, <laughs> that's nice oh that's that's great I'd love to have someone choose my school for my <laughs> yeah um, they were really the only school that would take him so um, he's at Kalamu Prep now and uh, they were really they've been so supportive from the beginning everybody else said oh you know his issues and there's there's a risk of seizures and a risk of heart problems and a risk of this. And uh, Kalami Prep was the only school that came and said, listen, this is what we've got. Is it enough? What else would we need? And uh, so we knew from the very beginning that they would. I mean, our biggest problem is we had never planned for Jean to go to school because we didn't think he'd be alive that long. And uh, so come October last year, we were kind of like, okay, this is actually happening. We really need to get him into school. And uh, so we started, you know, phoning around and everybody else said no except them. And they've just been so amazing. So you're telling me, Kelly, that you were being punished for disclosure. You were disclosing your child's health. Basically. Um, situation. And schools were turning around and saying, no, we can't help you. Basically. And uh, it's constitutionally not correct. But in the same light, I didn't want to send my child to a school where already he was an exception. It's going to be hard enough for him. I didn't want him going as the exception to the rule where everyone is going, oh, you know, here comes this kid with all these problems. I wanted him to be somewhere where they were accepting and they were caring. And that's exactly what his school has done. They have just been amazing. I cannot. The, the level of support that they've given from everything up to making sure he drinks his protein shake at school to helping him walk down to the tuck shop on Fridays to making sure that he eats correctly. To, you know, they've just been amazing. That sounds amazing. But yeah, we'll be back after the song break and we'll carry on. Thank you so much. I, I really am enjoying this. I think you're an example of a person that's taken a tragedy and turned it into, into something positive. There's a place in your heart And I know that it is love And this place was brighter than tomorrow Well, it's people like Kelly that make the world a better place indeed. I mean, I was saying during the break that um, your selfless love 
for people that you don't know is, is why you're doing what you're doing. And it's so great to have a person like you, you know, doing, doing the work that you're doing. Well, you can call us on 0861 You can tweet us at cliffcentral.com or you can tweet me at doxindi, D-O-C-S-I-N-D-I. So you were telling me, um, Kelly, that there's 350 million people worldwide that have rare diseases. Now, I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, if you put them all in one country, it would be the third most populated country in the world. That's amazing. So we're really not all that rare. Collectively, we're quite common. Mm. And so, South Africa? So South Africa, globally, the statistic is between 6 and 8%. Um, South Africa, because we have no research, we have no database, and because we have no sort of the healthcare uh, in general, the healthcare sector has kind of been quite slack in terms of uh, focusing on orphan diseases or genetic diseases in general. We don't have any statistics available for South Africa. The only statistics that we have are what we populate amongst our little organization ourselves. Um, nationally, there is nothing, but we are working on it. Uh, we're busy at the moment with the Department of Health trying to rewrite some things and get, you know, you know, make sure that these things are now starting to become a priority. And do you think screening at birth, like a more stringent um, screening of newborns, would help in, in picking up rare diseases? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, they, you know, if you look like some countries or some states in the U.S. screen for like 58 different things at birth, and, um, you know, it's the more common, it's the more common conditions, um, even though they're rare, but they're the more common rare ones. But, uh, most definitely because early treatment, it, it completely affects the way the child's life will pan out. If you take a, a, a disease, like a storage disease, for instance, and you've got that storage accumulating for five years, or you have it accumulating only for two weeks because treatment starts, you can't say that the effects are going to be the same. Obviously, that kid's going to be in a much better health than a child who's now suffered for five years with continuous problems, who's now going into multi-systemic organ failure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and then you land up now trying to implement treatment. You almost pass the point of no return. So, I mean, we're not saying don't start treatment later on in life, but what we are trying to push is that early diagnosis and early intervention are critical in terms of outcome. And the problem with that is as well is that it affects the efficacy. Mm. So people are saying, yeah, but I had a patient that we started on treatment and they were 15 when we started and he only survived another year. Yeah, because he was 15 when Mm, you started. Late diagnosis. You know, if he had started when he was six months old, it might not have been the case. So it kind of is counterproductive um, in the sense that the ones that start treatment much later on in life, when the disease has progressed to the point of no return, um, it lands up kind of affecting everyone's view on treatment of rare diseases Mm. generally. Yeah, I understand. So in South Africa, like, give me an example of two rare diseases that you've come across, the most so, interesting ones. So I think uh, one uh, that's been on the topic at the mo- uh, well, has been on the forefront is pulmonary hypertension, and that was because we had uh, Jenna Lowe who was doing that campaign, "Get Me to 21." Uh, she was desperate for a new pair of lungs. So pulmonary hypertension is also relatively common in uh, in in terms of rare diseases. It's one of the more common ones. And then uh, if you take something like Crohn's disease, which obviously affects the guts, it's a bit of a shitty disease to talk about, but <laughs> it is, um, you know, Crohn's is also something that's really, really common. And, um, you know, a lot of people, it's it's a it's a fairly treatable condition to a large extent. When we were at Hrutuski Hospital, I met a, a Crohn's patient who they reckon is one of the worst Crohn's patients South Africa has seen. And to just see how debilitated she is because she didn't get treatments early enough. She's left with less than one meter of her intestine. And, and they've been, they've been dissecting, cutting it out. Because yeah, it's they've so had to cut, damaged. yeah, they've had to cut it all out. And that means 
for layman's, you know, in terms of if you don't have enough intestine, you don't absorb enough of what you mm. eat because the absorption, you know, the ex- absorption surface is much less. So, I mean, she's like terribly thin. Her entire family is kicked her out. Nobody wants to be involved with her because she's almost, she's almost, it's, it's almost like they need to caregive for her all the time. So she was in hospital and her whole family left and no one came to fetch her. And she landed up meeting a fellow patient who was, uh, had schizophrenia and bipolar. So these two now live together. Um, they're not in a relationship or anything. He looks after her from a, from a health point of view. She looks after him from a mental health point of view. And it just highlights, I mean, the fact that society has let them down. Um, the, you know, they've got, they've only got each other in the whole world and they're living off their, you know, d- d- disability grants and they can literally just cover their rent with that. And my heart just broke for this woman because in a first How world country, she, she I, I, I'm not kidding when I tell you she must have looked 72. And when I saw her ID book, she was born in 73. Oh, and literally, and I just looked at this woman, my heart just broke into a million pieces for her because like there's a prime example of someone who's desperate for help and nobody cares. So 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 if you have a rare disease in South Africa you qualify for disability grants. It depending depending on the condition. Um if for instance if you've got like an autoimmune disease it's very difficult to prove that it's debilitating. Um in her case so she's no longer able to move so around. She, yeah, so she can't work anywhere. Yeah. But uh, so not necessarily no. I mean, even the process for applying for a disability grant is so laborious and time consuming. I I almost feel as though they make it so difficult so that half the people will actually go through with it. Because if you are stressed out, if you're a primary caregiver, you've got a sick child or a sick mother or a sick sister or something that you are looking after and that they're taking up all of your time and all of your spare energy. Now you've got to sit dealing with some government department that's lost your forms three times. Then they tell you that it's illegible and you wrote in red pen it was meant to be black. Does it matter? What matters is that there's somebody out there really needing assistance. Well, these are all the things that you need to highlight um, with you, you know, when you meet up with the Department of Health, that we need to make access to the dis- to disability grant for those that qualify um, easier. I mean, well, these are things that you need to bring I up. I mean, it's like, it's, it's like a no-brainer. You don't need brain surgery to realize. And then they'll tell you that you have to report in person to bring your forms in. These people no, can't that's move. True. Well, the thing is that, okay, so I mean, I'll defend that bit, um, kid, because I used to fill out disability forms. And then we went through a stage where we had ghost patients receiving yeah. grants. Okay, and so yeah, you, had, you had doctors that had signed up all these people that didn't exist for grant, and they were getting the money. So the part where the, where the patient has to be seen by the medical doctor, it, it happens once, the once off, but it's really important because you need to make sure that you've seen you've seen the client. So I understand why that happens, but I suppose you could have a situation where the doctor drives out to the house of the person that can't or at their can't next move. clinic visit yeah. that it gets done at the same time, or that you have a social worker come and find that patient. Not necessarily sending them out to the Department of Social Development where they've got to sit in a queue for six hours. Mm. You know what I mean? And it's things like that that just absolutely break my heart. The state sector has completely, I'm not only saying state sector, sure, we have some medical aids where there are still problems. But by and large, the state sector has completely neglected the needs of these patients. And I think it's a, it's a case of um, awareness. I mean, my eyes have been opened. I was in the state sector for the past nine years. And now that I know this, I'm going to make sure that I, I tell other people that, listen, there's a society. You need to, you know, you need to familiarize yourself with it. And if you have any patients who need help, then this is the person to contact. I mean, it's a, it's a matter of our eyes being opened. Absolutely. And I mean, lobbying together. We, mm-hmm. I can't do it. it. It doesn't help us on our own. It's all the organizations that f- have the same problems. We all need to stand together for the greater scheme of things. You know, um, you'll find that, 
uh, for instance, stroke patients, they have the same problems in terms of uh, mobility and SASA grants, etc. They've got the exact same issues by and large. Help us. Let's, you know, write open letters to the Minister of Health. Somebody needs to catch a wake up and realize that these patients are being neglected. And the longer that we stand by, we, they were still paying for them. Society still pays for them. You know, everyone thinks if they're not coming into the hospital, they, they're not being paid for. That's untrue. You've now got the primary caregiver who was contributing to society in the workforce that's not doing it anymore. You've now got social development that's taking, picking up, you know, the fees for these patients. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it's not as though they've just disappeared and now, you know, our tax system's not paying for them. We're still paying for them. It's just a matter of how. Mm. And these patients, a lot of the time, want to work. They want to have some independence. They will do anything given the given the resources and the guidance. And without that, they can't actually move their lives forward. And it's not their fault. And this is why we need a rare diseases protocol. I mean, you mentioned that earlier on. We need something like that. Guidelines and just, yeah, a whole massive... Shift in thinking. Yeah. So, I mean, I I was quite touched when you mentioned that um, you didn't think that your son would live to this age, Kelly. Um, Why? Well, uh, for no other reason than they told me so. Um, They said to us that there was no, that they, he wouldn't see his second birthday and that he also wouldn't walk. And, um, you know, like, you can never limit someone's potential, ever. If there's one thing, I always say rare disease patients get told they're going home to die and they see it as a challenge and they're like, ah, I'm going to show you I won't. And it's because they've got so much spirit in them and, uh, the, you know, they'll fight. It's just given a little bit of encouragement, they'll do the rest. But, yeah, so, I mean, we didn't think that we would get to, you know, schooling and I often hear parents complaining, especially now that he's in mainstream school. You hear folks complaining about the fact that their kid's not doing so well at cricket or you know, he didn't make the first side, and I'm just like, I mean, I'm is it that bad? <laughs> is that so bad, the fact that they only made the second side? Your child's walking, talking, breathing, and healthy, and there's no price for that. So it's given you a, a great appreciation for every moment that you spend with Jean. Yeah, every time he, you know, like w- when he jumped for the first time and got both of his feet off the ground, like that's a, people are like, okay, well, what's the deal? Like she's doing backflips because her kids lifted, you know, airlifted for the first time. It's a huge deal. That was like three years worth of therapy to get him to that point. You know, or when he walks up the stairs and you notice that he doesn't hang on to the wall to climb up and those sort of things, those are the things that really give you encouragement to keep going. And is he involved in any sport, anything at all at school or not? Not at the moment, no. I mean, he tried, he did a, a like a rugby, like a, a kiddies rugby thing the other day and he seemed to quite enjoy it but he was so exhausted afterwards Mm. so you also need to weigh up what's beneficial versus what actually causes more harm to his body so that's that's the challenge um you know is where to restrict him and where not to and swimming he swimming's pretty good for him except that uh he kind of doesn't have great trunkal support so he can't keep himself out of the water for too long so a bit of a challenge as that's another thing moms are like your kid's not swimming yet and i'm just like seriously (laughs) It takes some self-restraint some days. I can imagine, Keely. And just just from a okay, so from a spiritual side or from a, a psychosocial support side. So I mean, I know that your family has rallied around you and your friends as well. Um, do you go to church? Do you believe in God? What 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 do you do in terms of what is happening on the inside? Things that you couldn't really express. How do you how did you deal with that? Well, I think initially for a long time there was a bit of resentment and bitterness towards any form of spiritual. Um, 
anything. Um, and it's, it's because you're in such a tough situation and it's, it's really difficult to understand that there is a bigger picture. But subsequently, um, through the encouragement and reinforcement of some of my religious friends, I've kind of found my way back to being spiritual along with my husband. Both of us at different times have been at different places. And, um, it's, uh, it really, it's, it's been quite a change and, uh, it's, it's also it's nice to be able to rely on something that you have, no, you know, when you have no control over the situation, it's hard, especially being a mother. You want to control everything from what color pants they're wearing to when they eat their food. So, you know, it's, it's good to be able to just give control over to something else and hope for the best. And John's little sister, how does she cope with everything? I mean, have you, exp- oh. how old is she, first of all? She's four. Okay. So and, there's oh, a, she's a chatterbox, I'm sure. Yeah. So there's the 16 month age gap, which is tough enough. Um, but uh, she, it's quite, it's been quite sad for her in that she's been a caregiver to him her whole life. So every time he drops something, she'll get up and pick it up for him or she always makes sure that he's taken all of his tablets and she'll come and say, mom, Jean's bumped his toe or she's been very responsible. So this is the first year that they've been separated and they've been in separate schools and it really has done good things for her. I think in terms of siblings, parents underestimate the impact it has on the sibling. They are by far, you know, they are left, they are left behind. As a family, you neglect them and it's not because you intend to, it's just because you focus on the child that needs you most of the time. The child with a special need. You know, and that's just how the world works. And I always say to moms, you know, just take five minutes out and try, you know, give that other child some attention, even if it's going to do the grocery shoppings with them on your own, uh, just the two of you, because they, they thrive. They're like little plants. They just thrive in the smallest amount of sunlight. You just give them any attention and they're happy. They generally don't require much because they've, They've had to go without for so long, but it's so important. And uh, I really do think siblings battle uh, more than um, more than anyone can ever actually notice. You know, more than you realize. Wow, Kelly, and and Jean himself. I mean, do you speak about his red disease to him? Does he understand what's happening? Yeah, what I does think he say? I think self awareness for him is very very important. I think um, you know f- his friends and school friends and stuff will always realize that he is a little bit different and that he's a lot more clumsy and he doesn't he's not as quick as anyone else. So um, we always just try to bring it out in relative relevant terms for him. So we've kind of improved his story as he's grown older and given him more detail. But he is aware. And, you know, then you also get to the point when they realize that they're sick and then they know that they can use it as an excuse. So <laughs> you say, eat your dinner. And he's like, Mom, I'm sick today. <laughs> you're, like, you're sick every day. Eat your day. broccoli. <laughs> eat your dinner. So, yeah, it's uh, it's quite difficult uh, from that point of view. But it is very important that they understand. And also in terms of long-term treatments, etc., I always say to parents, don't lie to your kids. Don't say, you know, if you've got to go back to the hospital, don't say to them, no one's going to hurt you, I promise. Because you end up doing more damage to your your relationship with them than what that needle prick does to them in the event that you were honest. Yeah, so no, honesty and being upfront is so important. Yeah, it's very important. So now the drip, do you put it up? Yeah. So uh, you, you can yeah, do everything, cannula, so, everything. Yeah, so we've got a port now and yeah. that makes life much easier. So we draw all these bloods and everything at home. And it's also, it's it's not only from, it's from an infection control point of oh, view, yeah. it's from an education point of view. I mean, even in private hospitals, you still have a very high infection problem. Oh yes, with the and it's it's just it, I'd rather take the time out and do it myself than um, and take responsibility for it than presume someone's doing it with the same level of care that we do it at home. So, 
You know, we do everything at home, and it's also easier for us. You can go to school five days a week. We do it on a Friday afternoon. We don't have to take a day off, go sit at the hospital for six hours, fill out forms. Medical aid doesn't have to pay for that cost, so it makes the overall treatment cost less, you know, which helps in terms of, you know, freeing up funds for somebody else who needs it. So there's also a socioeconomic point of view as well. And in, and in terms of, of, of his future, like the, what, is, what does he want to do when he grows up? Greg just sent in a question and asks, what does he want to do career-wise? What are his dreams? What are his aspirations? Well, he honestly thinks he's a superhero. So I think if you had to ask him that question, he'd tell you he's going to go be Spider-Man. And I think he doesn't think anything beyond that. That is so cute. <laughs> His sister has adamantly said that she'll be a doctor and she's going to help kids like Sean. And she is going to be a doctor. She's, <laughs> she declared it. I declared that I was going to be a doctor when I was four. And look at me today. So I know she's going to do it. <laughs> so she'll probably do it. But I think uh, Jean will definitely be a people person. He's got a huge amount of empathy and he picks up on people who are in distress. Uh, if you find, you know, I've seen an old person, an old lady that was stuck in a wheelchair and John went up to her in a waiting room and I kind of squeezed her hand. He's got that thing about him that he picks up that need, mm. you know, that need for assistance in people. So whatever he does, I'm sure he'll be successful. That's amazing, Keely. And were you in a full-time job before your son was diagnosed with the illness? Yeah. Okay, and, and that had to fall away. Like... <laughs> I mean, it would be like working four days, four mornings a week mm. at uh, somebody, you know, like applying for a job. I want to work earn a full salary working four days a week with the chance of working at home on a bad day. And maybe I just leave mid-morning for an emergency. No one would employ you under those circumstances. So and it must have been a hard decision. It was. And I mean, as a parent, I think you feel like you're losing a little bit of yourself when you have to give that up. I think that's, that's been a big struggle for me is, is losing my identity. I used to be really fun and kind of reckless and I didn't have much responsibility to now having to be responsible all the time and always think of the benefits of others. So it was kind of a bit of a hard, you know, internal argument for me and something that I've had to work through. How do I identify myself as this mom of this kid that I didn't realize I was going to have? And, uh, you know, you almost mourn the child that you've lost in the sense that you mourn the, that healthy child you thought you were going to have. You've got to go through acceptance of the special needs child that you've been given. And your friendship circle, um, have you kept the same circle? Did your circles change? How, well, how was that? Uh, no. <laughs> um I think unless you've been there or you're intimately involved, it's difficult to understand. So I think one of the big things that I it irritates me to the point that I actually I have no interest in speaking to them afterwards is when someone will say to me, yeah, but he's not sick today. Why don't you still come? And you're like, on the one day that he's having a good day, I actually would like to sit on my couch and be like a normal family and do normal family stuff. I don't necessarily want to come to a bra now that I'm, you know. But then in the same light, you also feel like you're not getting invites anymore. So <laughs> you kind of get upset about the fact that no one's including you. But at the same time, you don't want to be there. So it's a bit of a challenge. But no, our friendship circle, my friendship circle definitely has moved. And uh, you find, you know, like birds of a feather. You land up, uh, you know, spending more time with people who are in similar situations than those that don't. So mm, That's understandable. And um, have you done any work? Um, okay, I know you were being treated at Barra. Are there any interesting diseases, especially amongst the black population, that 
you know, you could tell me about any interesting rare diseases in so, the black community? So I can tell you, like, for instance, uh, the mucopolysaccharidosis, which mm. MPS, which is also storage disease. We find that we have completely novel mutations here amongst our black population, as well as Gaucher's. Uh, that you don't find anywhere else in the world, which makes identification a problem because when you send this gene s- studies off for testing, they come back, no, they're negative, but then in actual fact the patient's positive, but we haven't identified our genes. So if we being the rainbow nation that we are, it's always an interesting dynamic, and I think it makes the people overseas want to pull their hair out because every time they get a sample from us, they really need to study it in depth because we just do have so many strange and wonderful things here. But that's yeah, that's one of the ones that I've really noticed is that most of our black population that comes back comes back with something novel in terms of that sector. And how many, so, so you said you have um, quite a, well, thousands of members of, uh, of the Red Diseases Society. How many members are you sitting at at the moment and how do people find you? Uh, so I think generally it's Google actually and Facebook. We've got a very busy Facebook page. I think we're on like 33,000 people on Facebook. So we've always got a lot of, we get a lot of inquiries on Facebook, which isn't, I mean, people can contact us on Facebook, but if we respond saying, please send it by email, must do that because that's a way for us to track you afterwards. Facebook's very difficult to track all the comments, etc. But Facebook and social media as well as our website. But then a lot now we're working the doctor side as well. So we educate doctors and uh, you know, the public. So doctors will often refer patients to us as well. And things like Rare Disease Day, which is coming up now at the end of the month, it gets people talking about rare diseases and then everyone's like, have you got your little ribbon? Oh, what's that for? Why are you wearing that? And I didn't know. I've got a brother with a rare disease. I'll get them in touch. So we find we have splurges. Rare Disease Day, like March will be a busy month for us with new patients coming forward. And what color is a rare disease ribbon? It's all denim. For jeans, jeans for jeans. Oh, that's so cool. So now, I don't know if you know this about me, Kelly, but I'm going to be Minister of Health in 2030. So that's, that's where I'm going. That's my future. So if, if I was Minister of Health and you sat in my office and you said to me, Dr. Cindy, this is what we'd like to see as part of the rare diseases protocol. What would you like to see? Just treatment. Mm-hmm. Treatment. <laughs> too yeah. much to ask. And um, screening of babies. Like what, what, yeah. yeah, what would make an, you know, what would be the ideal situation for moms to have their babies diagnosed early so that there's no babies being diagnosed at 11 months like your son was? Yeah. So I definitely think screening is something that we need to look forward, look towards. But there's no point screening children if you don't have a plan in place for those that come back positive. So you kind of need to get those structures in place first and then worry about testing. Uh, because there's nothing worse than coming back with, yeah, your kid's got it, but it doesn't change that we can't do anything. So uh, I think if you had to ask me if you were the Minister of Health sitting in front of me now, my thing would be to please put a portfolio together that doctors can approach. Uh, it must be an independent committee that looks and weighs each case up on their own. No two patients are the same. No two clinical pictures are exactly the same. That weighs each case up on its own and identify who qualifies for treatments and who doesn't. We don't say everybody that's got a treatable condition requires treatment. Some patients are, have a condition, they've been diagnosed, but they're non-symptomatic. Then you've got some patients that have been diagnosed too late and treatment will not be beneficial. Mm. But the ones that need it, give it to them. I mean, you know, just it's uh, like for me, it just makes no sense that the cost is always the final argument that it's too expensive to treat. Mm. And your son's treatment is costing three million rand a year. Uh, yeah, it's about yeah about that. Mm. And at least you have a medical aid that um, you know has recognised the condition and is willing to pay for it. But had it happened in another way, it would be a different story altogether. 
I mean, well, we half crossed that bridge when we were with another medical aid. And, I mean, they eventually started paying for his treatment, but the administration process behind it on a month-to-month basis was virtually impossible to maintain. And every minute counts. Yeah, I would have needed to employ a full-time PA just to handle medical aid queries. That's how bad it was. So we moved over to a medical aid that's you know, gives you a response within five days and, you know, has a good administrative structure because, believe it or not, that is actually important when you're dealing with it every single day. It's If you're phoning about your dentist, claim for your molar that you had removed three months ago, that's not a major that doesn't take a lot of time up, but when you're dealing with claims for six different doctors, five different therapists on a monthly basis, you know, it's important every 300 rand appointment that hasn't been paid for adds up at the end of the day, so it's uh, so it really administrative and finding a medical aid that you feel you gel with is largely important as well. Yeah, and just in closing, Keely, if someone was to become part of your society, what 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 do they benefit? What do the parents benefit from from being part of your society? I think um, in terms of the first thing is obviously patient advocacy is that we we advocate for all of our patients. So if you're having a problem with your medical aid, your state hospital, your physiotherapist accessing information or anything like that we can assist you and it's also in terms of linking you with other parents in your area making sure that you get that you know dedicated support from a day-to-day point of view so we create little like circles of people that can talk to each other and you've always got somebody to give you a helping hand i think that those would be the two most important things and then for kids it's to find other people that are like them you know, to have a friend that's, that's so also the same. Yeah, that's so important. So, in closing, where can we find you? Twitter account, website. Yeah, Rare Diseases SA for Twitter, uh, Rare Diseases South Africa on Facebook, and www.rarediseases.co.za. And also, if you're wanting to participate in Rare Disease Day at the end of the month, we've got our ribbons for sale. You can order them online. We'll courier them out to you with DHL straight to your doorstep. It's really, really easy. Schools, co- corporate companies, anybody can participate. It's really lucky. You get to wear your jeans for the day, and you get to actually be involved in a community that really needs your support. Kelly Duplessis, thank you so much. I love your heart. I love your spirit. But I think above all, I love the fact that you've shared with us what a lot of parents go through and we're not even aware of it. So mm-hmm. thank you so much. All the best. And I will be ordering some ribbons Thanks for, for your diseases me. day. Thank you. Great.